Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn again this morning to the book of Ephesians. And based on the feedback that I got last week, it seems that the main fruit of my sermon last week was a fierce debate over which mnemonic device would most help people find Ephesians amongst Galatians, Philippians, and Colossians. Was it Go Eat Popcorn, or was it General Electric Power Company, or George Eats Pork Chops, or my kids were actually coming up with new ones the following day, but it's not exactly the life-changing application I was hoping for. But if it helps us get to Ephesians quickly, then I'm sure that the Lord will bring some fruit from it. Last week, we saw that the Lord, through Paul, did not even waste the formalities of greetings to remind us of our identity in Christ and of God's character and of the heart of the gospel as grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, we're moving on from that foundation to one very long but very wonderful sentence. Because although the editors and publishers of your Bible have likely inserted some punctuation, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 are all one long sentence in Paul's original Greek. I want to read this full sentence because I don't think you can stop in the middle of a sentence without losing something. But we're going to take three weeks to work through this sentence. So I hope you'll join with me now. We'll give it our first reading this morning even as we watch its truths over the coming weeks. Listen as I read from God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God, how we thank you for this long sentence, this glorious sentence that you inspired by the hand of Paul. Would you comfort and confront our hearts and would you bring glory to your name this morning? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let my current stage of life, I consider myself something of an expert on conversations with four to six-year-olds. And while each child, of course, is a bit different, 
one thing stands out about talking with this age group. There's rather a lack of maybe logical clarity and progression in conversations, but there is no lack of words. The words just keep flowing and usually connected by words like and, 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 and then. And usually in a conversation, the only thing I'm contributing is mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There just seems to be such joy and delight in sharing life experiences and having an audience to listen to their life experiences. And in fact, I, I recently had the thought that if I was a member of the United States Senate, I could pull off a fantastic filibuster by just bringing a couple of four to six-year-olds I know. And the opposition would back down with no time. Of course, Paul had an immense mind capable of deep clarity and logical thought. But in this run-on sentence in Ephesians 1, in his excitement, he loses himself a bit. And there's one phrase added upon another in his excitement over the blessings that God has given us in Christ. But there's two things that give order and clarity to this sentence. And I want to note those right at the beginning. The first thing is that Paul gives us a clear thesis statement for his whole sentence, and it's in verse 3. What's Paul's main point in these 12 verses? This sentence is a declaration of praise for the blessings that God has given us in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul's thesis statement here is a burst of praise as he stands in awe of what God has done for us. But his statement is not dramatic hyperbole. It's not like some of the the newscasts you hear sometimes where very trivial facts are said with such drama to make us think that it's the most important thing in the world. This sentence really is just a statement of facts. And it's the facts themselves that are so overwhelmingly glorious. That God has looked upon us human creatures, frail as dust, who have lived sinfully for ourselves in this world rather than for the God who created us. And God has looked on us and made the unexpected decision to pour out on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What a thesis statement. Now we should clarify here, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places refer to those blessings that are found in the presence of God Blessings related to heaven and eternity, as opposed to material blessings of this world. It's not that God doesn't give material blessings, of course he does, but God has not promised any particular level of material comfort or blessing. To some, he gives more, to others less. Some lose even what we have. And even the material blessings that God does give pass away and have no lasting value. And so it is the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that really matter for our hearts and lives. The real question for us is when this world, with all of its suffering as well as its pleasures, passes away and we face the reality of eternity that we were created for, what awaits us then? What do we have in the heavenly places? Apart from Christ, only death and the consequences of living life for ourselves in rebellion against God. It's only what we deserve. But according to Paul's thesis statement and the statement of facts that fires this sentence, if we would repent and turn in faith to Christ, then God has decided to give us not some spiritual blessings, not mere permission to go to heaven instead of hell. He has decided to bless us with every spiritual blessing that can be found in his presence forever. 
And praise is the only possible response to such an unexpected and undeserved gift. So that's the thesis statement. If we ever get lost in this sentence, come back. That's what Paul is doing. Paul then launches into his his sentence, attempting to summarize all these blessings that God has given us in Christ. And as we work our way through these verses, the second organizing thought, the second key thing that gives clarity to Paul's thought is this, that the God who offers us salvation is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this whole sentence is organized around God as a trinity, what the Father does in the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this is so important for us to see because the trinity can be difficult for us to focus on. It's tough for us to understand. And I can't give you a simple sentence or analogy to understand how one God can exist in three persons. But I can assure you this from Scripture. The Trinity is not a math problem. It's not theological fine print that we can just skip over and leave to the theologians. No, the Trinity is the heart and soul of Christianity. You leave out the Trinity and you no longer have Christianity. The Father, Son, and Spirit and one God is the essence and uniqueness of God. And it it is as the Trinity, as Father, Son, and Spirit, that God gives us salvation. And so as we look at this sentence, I want to look at it through the lens of Father, Son, and Spirit. Today we'll look at the Father's role in redemption. Next week we'll look at the Son's. And the third week, the Holy Spirit. So let's jump in this morning and see the Father's role in our redemption. We can summarize it this way. The Father is the master planner of redemption. Like both the architect and the general contractor, the Father crafts and initiates the plan, and He oversees and guarantees the execution of the plan. And the Father is able to do this because He is perfectly sovereign. Now, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about God's authority and power over everything that happens in this world throughout all of history, such that all things happen according to his will, and nothing can happen that would thwart his will. If we were to do a survey of all of Scripture, we would find that weather and storms, health and sickness, the hearts of kings and the decisions of nations, the apparent coincidences of our lives and our major decisions are all directed by the hand of this sovereign God. In fact, if you read through this first chapter, it should jump out at you that Paul assumes and states this fact of God's character again and again. Last week, we saw Paul say that he was only an apostle because of the will of God. Look down to verse 6 today. In verse 6, we find that God predestines or determines ahead of time that we would be adopted as sons according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9 goes further. God makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And then if that's not enough, verse 11 is even more comprehensive. We have been predestined to an inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And it is God's authority and ability to work all things according to the purpose of his will that enables the Father to be the master planner of redemption. So with that basic character trait of our God, we begin to see the details of the Father's plan in verse 4. 
And you can, you can hear Paul almost being like a little child here and asking the question why over and over through this passage. He's stated that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But why? Why would God do that? Why would God give us frail sinners every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? And verse 4 gives us the answer. Because before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ to receive these blessings as part of his plan. Here Ephesians speaks to us about the doctrine we call election. That God has declared from the beginning his intention to save his people. And the decision in, and his decision in calling alone enable a person to come to saving faith in Jesus. Ephesians 1 actually spells this out a number of times. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 11, over and over state that we have been predestined or predetermined to receive the eternal inheritance God has for us according to the counsel of his will. And it is that intention of our Father that leads him to pour out every spiritual blessing on us in Christ. And if we were to look back through Scripture, we would find that this is nothing new. This is how God has worked all through Scripture. Think back to Israel. Why did God choose Israel as his chosen people? In Deuteronomy 7, God tells Israel, He says, I didn't choose you because you were a great people or more numerous than other people's. I chose you because I decided to set my love upon you. In the New Testament, we find the same thing. Why has the Father chosen some to turn to God through faith in Jesus? And John 6 tells us, All that the Father gives me will come to you, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. God's people come to be His people because He has chosen to give them blessings in Christ. And this is such a blessing in and of itself. Because if our salvation rests on our choice, we can just as easily choose to reject Him. We could just as easily be insufficient or unable to maintain our faith. Meaning our salvation is up to our own strength and resolve. But if the Father has chosen us, then we are secure in His love. That's what the children's choir just sang for us. Jesus Himself put it this way in John 10. My Father who has given them to me. You hear the same point there, right? The Father has given a people to Jesus. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Our great comfort and our great hope is that God the Father has chosen to give us every spiritual blessing in Christ. And He works all things according to His will. And His intentions never fail. Now, for some, this doctrine is challenging because it seems like maybe it it takes away our, our freedom of will. If God forces us to do something, if God has destined us to do something and, and that will happen, have we just become remote controlled bodies? But that question assumes that we are capable of choosing to trust and obey God on our own. And scripture tells us over and over again that on our own, we are dead in sin incapable of making a choice to obey God. We are enslaved to sinful desires, incapable of pleasing God because of our sinful commitment to ourselves. And so unless God works in our hearts to change our hearts, we have a will, yes, but it is not free. There is no freedom of the will for sinners who are dead in sin, as we all are. We will always choose for ourselves and against God. But God in His mercy comes to free us from our bondage to sin so that for the first time we have freedom of the will. 
We, for the first time, we are free to choose faith in God and obedience to Him. And once God changes our hearts and shows us our true condition and shows us our need of Him and every blessing offered in Christ, He always and infallibly enables our hearts to respond in faith. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is also, this doctrine is also a challenge because at times we look at ourselves or we look at others and we wonder, oh, what, what if I'm not actually chosen? Or what if, what if my friend or relative might not be chosen? What if there's nothing they can do about that? But the call of Scripture is not to try to figure out if God has chosen you or not. The call of Scripture is to believe on Jesus as your Savior. And if that is your desire... Even if you see remaining sin or discouragement in your hearts, do not spend time wondering if God has chosen you. Spend your time looking at Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has said, anyone who believes in me will be saved. If that is your desire, come to him and you are promised salvation. What about others? When it comes to others, it is true that we don't know the details of God's purposes. But we don't know God's purposes until the end. We may look and say, it seems like that person will never come to Christ. But we don't know God's purposes until the end. But we do know that he has a purpose and a plan. See, God does not act randomly like a kid picking a teddy bear willy-nilly off of a group of them off the shelf. No, God has a plan. He tells us all of this is happening according to his purposes and his plan. And if that's the question, if he has a plan, the real question is, can we trust his plan? Can we trust him in his purposes? See, we often want a measure of control. We want the ability to make things happen ourselves the way we think is best. Or we at least want to know the end of the story so that we can judge for ourselves whether God was faithful or not. But we don't have that authority. We don't have that knowledge. That's God alone's. But what we do have is a revelation of God's character that enables us to trust him. And if we can trust his character, we can trust him with the lives of all of those that we know and love. I wonder if you ever had a chance as a child to walk through a new housing development that was going up when there were houses that had just been framed out. All there were were two by fours. There's no, no doors, no, no windows, no walls even yet. It's like a playground of wood. And you go in and, and as you're walking around, sometimes you're thinking, what was this architect thinking? Like this little nook of space. That couldn't be practical for anything. And that wall looks like it's going to run into that wall. He must have made a mistake. But of course, then you can look across the street and you can see the finished house. And you can say, oh, no, that architect and that builder did know what they were doing. It did produce a beautiful house that accomplished its goals. And that's something of the picture that we get of the Father's character as well. See, he is perfectly sovereign, and he works all things according to his will. He is a master planner, and the pages of Scripture are filled with stories that show that even when things didn't look like they were going to work out, a story of Joseph, or David, or Jeremiah, God was working his plan, and his goodness was shown in the way he worked things out, so that we can trust that God is working to bring about this plan of redemption for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And so this doctrine is a blessing. Does it challenge our minds and our understandings? Yes, but Scripture teaches it clearly, and it is our comfort and our hope. 
Well, let's go back to asking some more why questions. If God has given every blessing in Christ from before the foundation of the world, why has he chosen to do that? Why would he give such blessings to us? And we find the answer in verse 10. Because the Father's choosing was not random and it was not for our sake alone. It was part of a bigger plan that the Father had. What's the Father's grand purpose in all of history? Verse 10 tells us. His plan is to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. This is a far more comprehensive plan than we're typically think about. God's work of salvation is not just a declaration that I get to go to heaven. It is a cosmic redemption to reverse the curse and redeem all creation under the lordship of Jesus. And through faith, we are invited into this glorious kingdom where after this world is done, death will be no more. Suffering and tears will be wiped away. All things will be made new. The lion will lay down with the lamb in perfect peace. The river of the water of life and the tree of life will be there for the healing of the nations. And we will dwell with God in His presence and worship the Lamb who was slain forever and ever. That's the great plan. And God's calling of a people to Christ is part of this grand plan to unite all things in Christ. Of course, right now, we still live in the world that is broken with all of its suffering and consequences for sin. Second Peter 3, in fact, tells us that God is patiently enduring the ongoing wickedness and suffering of this world without ending it yet so that all of his people might have a chance to come to him in faith. And we too live through that suffering and curse waiting for that day to arrive. But that day will arrive because God sovereignly works all things according to his will. And his purpose is to unite all things in Christ as the king of the new creation. And he is working that out even now while we wait for that day to arise. So the Father, who has chosen to give us every spiritual blessing in Christ, did so because of his master plan to unite all things in Christ. But for one last time, let's ask why. Why? Why was this God's plan? What was his goal in this plan? And the text tells us once again, the goal in all of this was to secure the great praise of God's glory. You see it in verse 6. God predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. You see it in verse 12. We were predestined to an inheritance of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? So that we who hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see it in verse 14. You who believed in him were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why? To the praise of his glory. This is the goal of all God's work. And it's not the goal of God's work because he's some sort of selfish being that wants more glory. It's his goal because he is worthy of receiving praise and honor and glory. And because our greatest comfort and greatest joy are found when we are brought into his presence and we behold his beauty and glory and we praise him for all that it's worth. So what a brilliant plan that the Father had that he would design our salvation and our joy to come as we magnify him and praise his glory as he so deserves. And so here we have the Father's role in Ephesians chapter 1. We have Paul's thesis statement. God has poured out 
on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the Father has played out his role in crafting a plan and overseeing its execution, choosing us from before the foundation of the world for an inheritance in Christ, so that he might unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ, so that it would be to the praise of his glory. That's the Father's master plan of redemption. But in our last minute as we end, let me briefly encourage us with one application this morning as we see what our God and Father has done for us in Christ. I can imagine few things that would be more encouraging than the character of our Heavenly Father described in these verses. I don't know how each one of you came here this morning. Maybe some of you find yourself so bowed down by the weight of suffering that God's goodness feels like an impossibility. Maybe you're so overwhelmed with anxieties of your life or the situation of our our country that trusting the Lord seems difficult. Maybe you're discouraged at your own weakness and you're failing. And if you're honest, you just wonder if maybe God's just as discouraged at your own weakness and failing as you are. Maybe we suspect that, yes, Jesus loves us, but the exalted Father more endures us for Jesus' sake. These are all things that the enemy whispers to us. But look at how God our Father is described in these verses. I want you to notice that in this whole sentence, the Father is the subject of every verb in the sentence. Every main verb, every verb, the Father is the subject. So if we start to look at the verbs, what is the Father like? What has the Father done? Well, the Father chooses us so that we might be in His presence with Him, holy and blameless. In love, the Father predestines us to be His own sons and daughters. The Father lavishes upon us the riches of His grace. The Father predestines us to an inheritance, sealing us with His own Holy Spirit. See, this is the attitude and intention of your Heavenly Father as He works across the ages to redeem us in Christ. And the question is, will you trust the character of this Heavenly Father? Hear who He is. Hear what He declares to us. Some of you know the name Jackie Hill Perry. She's a former lesbian hip-hop artist who came to Christ and speaks frequently about the beauty of God's character and salvation. And just this past month, she was speaking to a, a large group of young adults, and she stated that in the midst of a fractured world where it seems that so much goes wrong, when we see the suffering of the world around us, perhaps the greatest challenge for us is to remember and trust the goodness of God. But, she says, remembering and trusting the goodness of God is the key for rejecting sin and finding joy and comfort in Him. She describes her own conversion as my eyes being awakened and unveiled to the beauty of God. She describes looking through Scripture and seeing that at His hand are pleasures forevermore. And seeing that while we were still in sin, the Father sent Christ to die for us. And so she says, even now, when circumstances are tangible in our, and in our face, this is our task, she said. Stop discerning or judging or projecting unto God behaviors that do not fit his character. He cannot be anything other than himself, which is holy and out of his holiness he is good and faithful, gentle and kind, loving patient and just. That's who he is. And that's what we see in Ephesians 1 this morning. 
It's all over the verbs of what He has done in lavishing His grace upon us through Christ. So as we look to God our Father, through Jesus who died for us, may we be strengthened and encouraged, comforted and amazed by the Father's love and commitment to us as He accomplishes His purposes in us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, how we praise You for this plan that You have revealed to us through Jesus Christ, a plan that You've had from before the beginning of the ages of this world, a plan to call a people to Yourself, that You might unite all things in Christ under His Lordship to the praise of Your glory, that You would call us to salvation and joy as we behold your glory and your presence and praise you as your name deserves. If there are any here this morning or those listening who have not trusted Christ, how I pray, Father, that your spirit would move in their hearts and bring them to trust the goodness and the grace of our God. And for those of us who have known you, may we give you greater praise and greater glory as we are reminded of these precious truths of how you have worked in us to the glory of your name. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.